Enthusiasm. Enthusiasm. Power. Power. There you go. <laughs> Welcome to the internet. Live from the Marriott Library at the University of Utah, this is the Redline Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Fielder, and these are my co-hosts... Connor Dunstan and... Kyle Holland. Today we're going to continue our discussion about transit hubs, but this time we're moving away from the big stations at the heart of transit networks to focus in on how neighborhood hubs can be made better. All of this after the news. The MBTA has continued its streak of egregious incompetence this week, with two separate incidents occurring on the T. Earlier in the week, an Orange Line train caught fire, forcing passengers to escape onto active tracks. It has also been reported that one woman reportedly jumped off the bridge and swam to shore, refusing help from a nearby fireboat. The T also experienced a second major incident this week. A runaway train on the Red Line nearly ran through a station. Both of these incidents call into question the quality of the leadership at the MBTA and put on full display the deferred maintenance and safety issues plaguing many major northeastern transit agencies today. Deferred maintenance is like the funniest phrase ever. I know. And it's like, oh, our thing needs fixed. Eh. Let's, we'll do it later. Let's just not fix it. Isn't that what Union Pacific does? Yes. With their tracks? 100%. I okay. mean, you, you've seen that crap that they have. They just down. drive slower. Yeah. yeah. We'll, just, we'll just go slower. It's fine. And if it derails, Max will only kill two people. I mean, have you ever heard of Lac Megantique? Care to elaborate? So, Lac, Lac, it's it's in Quebec, like in the province of Quebec. Okay. So, Lac Megantique is like, was, real cute, charming Quebecois town, like, very much, like, unspoiled by the ravages of cars. Cute downtown, but one day, this driver for, I don't remember what railroad, but it was an oil train, was a few miles up the track... And the locomotive caught on fire during the night, and he hadn't set enough handbrakes. And then the locomotive caught on, caught on fire, so it stopped powering the brakes because the fireman put out the fire and turned off the locomotive. So it just started slowly rolling downhill and rolling faster and faster and faster and faster until it hit a curve in Lac Megantique where the rails were not that great because deferred maintenance. And so it fell over and blew up like a hundred people in the town. I think I've seen pictures of this. Yeah, it's it's a pretty famous disaster, actually. I I see why. So uh, yeah, the red line train could have killed a hundred people if it hadn't been for luck. Is is my point? Let's try to not repeat historic and preventable accidents. <laughs> That's a funny idea. <laughs> yeah. Who 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 even thinks of these things? And I say a streak of incompetence because at the MBTA, this is a common occurrence. Like a month ago, there was a derailment on the green line. Uh, it, it happens all the time. The T is just real bad at making sure their crap doesn't go to crap. Is that because of budget? No. The MBTA is probably like the second or third best funded agency in the country. They just um, kind of, like hmm. everyone else in America, use it super inefficiently. Oh, do better, please. Yeah. Wonderful. Um, in other New England transit news, a CT Transit bus caught on fire this week. Can anyone guess what type of bus it was? Hmm. Maybe it was a diesel bus that... Ex no. A lithium-ion battery bus caught fire, forcing all 12 of Connecticut's electric buses off the road for the time being. Who could have predicted this? Well, that probably hurts service. Yes. Big time. Yeah, almost like we should leverage charging in motion technology so we can go with more stable batteries instead of lithium-ion ones that, you know, catch on fire all the time. Wow, maybe if we're going to put batteries in buses, we shouldn't put the largest, heaviest, and most dangerous type in them. Hmm. Maybe we should just have trolley buses. What a novel concept. What who a novel who would have thought of that? Uh, in more positive news, however, now that we've gotten the two horrible disasters out of the way, uh, New York's MTA has announced that they will bring wireless service to all subway tunnels and add Wi-Fi service to all the above-ground stations that don't already have Wi-Fi. This represents a quantum leap forward for passenger comfort on MTA trains and is an effort that should certainly be replicated everywhere. 
So they're going to add cell service in all subway tunnels. Brilliant. Seems smart. Good idea, right? Yeah. Very yeah. good idea. Yeah. Yeah. This has been the news. Wait, just one thing. Hmm? Didn't they open a new station in Salt Lake? They did. So back before we say this has been the news. <laughs> yeah, you can do the do the editing wizardry. Yep. Uh, also in positive news this week, the Utah Transit Authority has finally opened its sixth south station on the red, green, and blue lines. Bringing increased service to downtown. Bringing increased accessibility to our growing downtown fringe. That's what the mayor said. Located 1,200 feet south of the existing courthouse <laughs> station and servicing the exact same line, this planned infill station promises to make it marginally more convenient for residents of new apartment buildings of to use the rail service. singular new apartment building. But we can totally knock down more stuff to build more. You see, and that's yeah. what I'm hoping they do, they're going to do, but they did just build like a new parking lot there, so I don't know what the deal is. Yeah. As usual, we're using tracks as a development tool more than a transportation tool. Now, that's not true. That's the S line, not tracks. <laughs> this particular station. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, but the S line, this, is, this can be another supplemental news thing. The S line breaking all previous ridership records the last few months due to, you know, finally actually getting the development that was proposed when it was built. You know those giant new apartments next to Fairmont Station? Yeah. Reportedly, those are driving ridership. There was... 19 th- or 1,927 average boardings uh, last month, which is about 400 more than ever happened before. Sweet. Yeah. Brilliant. So, yeah. I don't doubt that that's the source of the ridership. Those are the, like, actually mixed-use um, developments. Yeah. I remember the days when that was just a defunct furniture warehouse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't, because I'm pretty new here. But I guess congratulations to the S-Line for being the U- first UTA service to recover from the pandemic. Oh. And then Eat some. that, UVX. <laughs> <laughs> now it just needs to ride in the street like a streetcar. Yes, and, and maybe... It rides on a pedestrian Hey, street. it rides in the street for like one minute uh, next to State Street. Sort of. <laughs> you know, that section should be completely pedestrianized. No, it shouldn't, because you yes. have to be able to park conveniently in front of your townhouse that has a garage in the back. <laughs> Are we talking about the ones by Winco? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, yeah, so this has been the news, trademark. So, last week we discussed transit hubs, and we focused in on the large system-defining stations that form the heart of most good transit networks. Like Penn Station and Grand Central. And, uh, let's see, I guess you would say South Station in Boston, the beautiful Salt Lake Central in Salt Lake City. (laughs) Salt Lake Central, in air quotes. We did did talk about that one. Yeah, also update about Salt Lake Central. Uh, Amtrak no longer, or excuse me, Amtrak does go there. Greyhound no longer goes oh, there. You nearly scared me. Yeah, no, Greyhound is no longer op- operating out of Salt Lake Central. But don't they have the massive building? Yeah, well, UTA was charging them a marginal amount of rent, and the new owners of Greyhound want to do everything to, it, to pinch pennies and make money except provide decent service to their customers. So, so <laughs> I believe they're now going to be running it like the Salt Lake Express, where they just oh. dump you wherever. Yeah, no, they're yeah. just running it from the airport now, next like to airport the Salt tracks. Lake Express. Yeah. Yeah. Great. I'm sure that the improved quality of service will attract <laughs> more ridership and revenue, allowing them to expand their network. You say the funny things, funny man. Very funny. Uh, yeah, but this week we're going to talk about neighborhood mini hubs, mobility hubs, whatever like transit buzzwords you want to use for them. So what is a mobility hub? Uh, A mobility hub is a place in a transit or transportation network where two or more routes and several means of transportation come together. Yeah, so like this can be as simple as like the 21 and the 200 meet on the corner of State and 21st. That is technically a mobility hub because you can transfer between buses. Any other mode of transportation is frowned upon. I mean, you can walk marginally, and there's a green bike station like a thousand yards away. Okay, cool. <laughs> so that's like your that's like a minimal Basic, example. Basic, yes. Just the meeting of two buses on a bus grid. Yes, but ideally, a mobility hub is yeah, two buses on a bus grid, 
but it should include other mobility options, gasp, like bike share, e-scooters, and most importantly of all, lay walking. Safe and pleasant walking at that. Yeah, yeah. ideally. Not get hit by car walking. That's, wait, that's illegal. You're picky, <laughs> you're picky. I know. come on, dude. No. Mobility hubs are generally in lower density residential areas and are often at the center of small enclave of neighborhood amenities like parks and small scale commercial units. Yeah, and it should be noted that when I say lower, like emphasis on the ER, lower density residential areas. Ideally, we're talking missing middle like residential areas. Ones. Or even that, <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I'm just referring to not skyscrapers here when I say lower density because a skyscraper it normally has like you know a big station within walking distance theoretically except well uh, city center station yeah Yeah, okay much mobility very well yeah (laughs) yeah one of her favorite examples of these is ninth east and ninth south in salt lake city which is ninth and ninth because we have cutesy names Yes, it's a great name. <laughs> we like the name. It combines two relatively high-frequency bus routes, an intersection of moderately safe bike routes, soon to be uh, much improved yeah. with the introduction of a new bike path, a bike share station, and space for e-scooters. And most importantly... It's a place. It is a place. There's businesses and houses there. There are and many people businesses. want to go there. And many houses. And many people. And much walking. And even public seating. Uh, is that legal? No. Yes. And not to mention, it's next to one of the biggest parks we have. Yeah, and this is, I think, ninth and ninth in Salt Lake City is probably the best example of, like, a, quote, mobility hub, unquote, that we really have. Because there are safe bike routes-ish, <laughs> mostly. Um, <laughs> there is a bike share station, there are e-scooters, there's good bus stops, and it's real easy transfer from the 9 to the 209. There's a a good deal of placemaking that's gone on there. It's very much a cultural amenities hub for, you know, most of Salt Lake City that isn't close to Sugar Hub or Sugar Sugar House or downtown. And yeah, it's got a park, a big grande park. Like we mentioned earlier, like the minimum for something vaguely resembling a mobility hub is just like a couple of transit routes and some bike and walking things. But what really makes a mobility hub is the place. Yes. And we cannot stress this enough because I know we talked a metric crap ton about this last time. But the placemaking aspect of a big hub, like the fact that it's somewhere people want to go to all of its own, is sometimes almost as important as, like, having good connections. Indeed, because public transit does not exist in a void to just, like, move people back and forth for no good reason. It exists to bring them to a place. That's a novel concept, if I've ever heard one. I know, right? So we should have places. Yep. Yeah, so... (laughs) Mobility hubs tend to kind of form pretty naturally around rapid transit stations, especially. If they are allowed to do so. Yeah, caveat. And this is because A, higher density development is generally allowed, generally allowed, around rapid transit stations and B, most reasonable transit agencies put high priority on using their bus services to funnel riders onto faster and higher capacity services. Yeah, so, like, you, you kind of gotta, if you, like, at the point where you've invested into a rapid transit system, whether it be heavy rail, light rail, actual metro, cable car, cable car, <laughs> <laughs> whatever. Uh, you want to be able to take full advantage of that by using those stations as the center point of your system. So your mobility helps progress naturally from that. You start with a rapid transit station and some zoning amendments. You add in your bus routes. Suddenly you have lots of quality transit in one place. Right. And, and it you start making it into a place. Bam. Mobility. And it doesn't even have to be on purpose all the time. Like, very much despite itself... Like, Central Point is a very big mobility hub, despite the fact that it is in the middle of a godforsaken car heckhole of garbage. <laughs> full of concrete everywhere yeah, you look. full of concrete, real dangerous road next to it, yeah. It's got a high-density de- development. It has a 
across I'll the street. Really it has a high density of uh, service parking spaces next to it. Yeah, high density development. Genius. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the rapid transit stations are especially good at this, and you can look at pretty much anywhere in the country except probably most Western American light rail stations. And <coughs> freeway stations. <coughs> Dart. <coughs> Dallas area rapid transit. <coughs> I'm sorry, I had something in my throat. Anyways, where were we? Uh, yeah, so uh, some of the benefits of mobility hubs for transit systems are that they create nodes of connectivity in residential neighborhoods, making it easy for local residents to access travel in multiple directions. Ooh, Ooh. Because, you know, people have to go... Sometimes they have to go east, and sometimes they have to go south. Spooky. I know. They also make for safer transfer points between multiple lines because nobody wants to change buses on a strode. Yeah. Absolutely. Well. Here's where example of the 21 and the 200 buses comes into play. That is a disgusting interchange of two state highway departments, service highways. You do not want to exist there, if at all possible. No, which is why everyone just rides the bus to tracks instead of transferring to the 200, probably. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in, in in all reasonable... On, on the uh, contrary, 9th and 9th is a comfortable and pleasant place to be for any reason. No, I don't think I've ever transferred bus... No, I've transferred buses there, and it was fine. Yeah, <laughs> I think I've transferred once before. Yeah. So, yeah, they are also uh, very important for convenience, because when you have a hub in your neighborhood, transit and alternate modes of mobility are much easier and more convenient to use. So a person living there is more likely to use them. Like, because oftentimes there is no bus route just in front of your house, right? There usually isn't, and there shouldn't be in lower density developments. Yeah, there's not always going to be a bus route or a, tra- or a tram stop or whatever right in front of your house. So if there's like a conspicuous place where all these things, where there's bike share there, there's e-bikes there. Oh, and I know there's two bus routes there. That makes it like a lot more compelling to just like go to said place and then go on to transit or go on to bicycle or scooter or your local bodega or whatever. Yeah. (laughs) And regarding e-scooters, mobility hubs uh, create a centralized parking area. So you don't have the phenomenon of the litter scooter. Yeah. Because everybody in cities likes to really just moan and groan about litter scooters, so it's good if you have, like, a place where they're designated to be parked. Yeah. Yes. Which they did up at the university recently. Yes, they have. They did do that. And those are good. It took a token amount of tape, and now the problem's (laughs) mostly solved. It is mostly (laughs) solved. So... Hold up, I'm loading insightful comments. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, Mobility hubs are also really good, like we mentioned earlier, for the overall development and character of a neighborhood. I know that's don't say those words; those are spooky. Uh, Yeah, I know that's a spooky and uh, often used by Nimby's word character. Mm. But the thing you can do with a mobility hub is you start with your base transit service, ideally a rapid transit station, or maybe it's just an intersection of two bus routes. And then Preferably, you like relatively frequent, like fifteen minutes. Yes. Anyone also aside, anyone who calls fifteen minutes a high quote high frequency close quote bus route is lying. That is not a high frequency. That is the minimum. That's, yeah, it that is, is minimum. It is the literal bare minimum for what qualifies as quote unquote frequent yeah. service. Okay, go ahead though. But anyways, you start with that baseline transit connectivity, and then you encourage development through zoning policies and whatever other magic cities do to encourage development. And you can slowly turn just a barren field of house (laughs) into a place that has a central location with businesses, with transportation, with options. It's a pleasant place to be, and you can just build up the whole neighborhood around that. Yes. That sounds perfect. I know, it sounds, sounds nice, right? Like, sounds like the dream. This was what Magna Downtown was supposed to be, but then that did not happen. <laughs> that, that'll that be something I'll talk about someday, because that, like, the amount of, like, placemaking plans that people love to make and then just not do is funny to me. The funny thing about plans, if you want the outcome, you have to do the thing. And you what? have to pay for it. <laughs> well, you don't necessarily have to pay for it. You can just... Ask private developers to make it for you. 
Yeah, you yeah. can just like that's, sell them the land and you That's make basically money. how that works. You say, here is this land. It is zoned so that you can make something that vaguely matches what we want. Have fun. Make but, money. But at what cost? So the city, some paperwork. Uh, and also figuring out how utilities. to get the land. And utilities. <laughs> I'm hoping they do it right. Yeah. But you have to pay for utilities anyways, so the city's not losing money on those. <laughs> pay for utilities? That's a joke, because we're never going to make enough property taxes to do for that. Oh, yeah. Speaking of property taxes, <laughs> yeah. building these mobility hubs, these kind of mini downtowns for neighborhoods are places, put a lot of property value in one place. Nice. And they and they reinforce that property value by making it a place that people want to go to and will go to. Well, it's, it's the same reason that land in downtown areas costs so much. Because when there's a bunch of amenities present, people want to build crap there. You're telling yeah. me people want to go where the things are? Yes, and not <laughs> not just rot away in a sea of endless, uh, generic, single-family houses. <laughs> make place where people want to go. Make profit. Make profit. Big profit. Yes. Any profit. It's also a good opportunity to consider a number of urbanism principles, like allowing denser development near Ooh. this new core you're building, etc., etc. It's a great launching point for really urbanizing an entire community. C'est vrai. Do yes. urbanists love sugar house then? No. No? I mean, the, most of it is a parking lot. Well, <laughs> if they ever fix 2100 South... Oh, then I'm sure that'll be wonderful. And put the train up at 11 feast. Yeah. Well, anyway... So, what makes a good mobility hub? Unsurprisingly, it's many of the same things that makes a good central station. Number one. Connectivity. A mobility hub should be a place where multiple lines, and like actually decent ones at that, yeah. and modes of transit meet. These right. transit lines form the spine of a mobility hub, and they allow residents nearby to move seamlessly and easily from one node of the transit network to another. And they solve a problem that plagues a number of supposedly urbanist developments that um, <clears throat> certain um, government organizations keep coming up with that are promise you? to be urbanist, people-focused places and yet are burdened by having a like one-to-one -one parking space-to-person ratio. Are you referring to the point? A point, <laughs> not saying what. <laughs> <laughs> He's making a point. About yeah. a point. About not the point, obviously. The point being the future of development in Harriman. And it's mm. fantastic. Oh, yeah, in every way. It doesn't have, like, more parking spaces than people or anything. No, 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 no. Uh, <laughs> of course. But, but that spine connectivity of quality transit routes, quality bike routes, and quality places to walk free you from an obligation to provide a crap ton of car parking and set you loose to actually develop. I am free! I concur. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> uh, a mobility hub should also be connected to the neighborhood around it. When that means bike infrastructure... And by bike infrastructure, we mean real infrastructure. Not real paint. concrete infrastructure. Not Get paint. it? Get paint concrete. is not infrastructure. No, it's not. There should be paint real concrete paint. concrete. Paint is paint. Paint is not infrastructure. This is true. Mm. Uh, that also means, most importantly of all, good pedestrian amenities. The neighborhoods around these places need to be very accessible from these places if they're going to work. Absolutely. And this is something we have easy up on the old Salt Lake City grid where we have an obscene amount of street connectivity <laughs> and a number of excess roads and streets and three roads. So we kind of get this connectivity by default, and we may even take it for granted. But a lot of newer suburban developments just throw... They have spaghetti. Yeah, they just throw <laughs> the concept of walking anywhere out the window, and will take a lot more work to get to the point where they're compatible. Yes. I mean, with the exception of a few. With the exception of a few. Like, Daybreak, actually a good example of this, because... I recently read a thing. Apparently, 85% of school children in Daybreak get this, walk or bike to school. 
good. 85. That's, so, that's how it should be. That's it, good, It should right? be like 98. Yeah. That's really good. So despite Daybreak's like abject car dependency, well, they've done a great job of within their little boxed community. You can walk. Allowing people to move around. Freely. And that's, that's about all you can do, but you can walk. Yeah, well... That's the first good news I've heard about Daybreak ever. It's a first step. I mean, and they did do the missing middle thing, okay. I sure wish they would have put, like, a grocery store. But the missing middle house in there is decent. I'm glad they made a massive pond in the desert. Yeah, okay, that I object to. But that's <laughs> that's a whole different thing. And also, Transit Hub should be accessible by as many modes of transportation as possible. That means ride share, car share, bike share, regular bikes, walking, scootering, rolling, even driving to an extent in suburban areas. Park and rides should be a subsidiary part of transit hubs, but in suburban areas they should exist. In these uh, more suburban transit hubs that we're building in areas that were previously pretty thoroughly car dependent, it's okay to accommodate motor vehicles. Like, one lane each direction, make it safe, make it traffic calmed, you're golden. And preferably, like, not surface parking. There is so much better use of land. Put it put it under under the station. Yes, if, if you <laughs> insist on building quantities of parking, hide it underground so it doesn't, like, literally destroy the, the fabric of your community. Well, yeah, and I mean, the best use of land next to the station is a very tall building with lots of people in it and resident or uh, commercial on the ground floor. You don't want to even remove that like a hundred feet if you can avoid it. Absolutely, <laughs> perfect mixed use then. Yes, yeah. preferably like at least sixty stories, but you know, uh, connectivity also means that meaningful connections should be made to nearby neighborhoods, allowing residents easy access to other hubs. Oh, you mean like we could have a bike route that just is like continuous all the way to the other thing and doesn't like twist and turn on going unsafe roads 50 bajillion times? That's an interesting idea. I wonder if anyone's thought of that before. <coughs> the Netherlands. <coughs> Copenhagen. Copenhagen. <coughs> Paris. Yeah. Well, uh, another thing that makes a good central station is proximity. Yeah, they should be hubs. They should be centers of placemaking, community development, economic activity, and social life. Be gone, the suburban park and ride. Do not put a parking lot between your transit users and, and their destination. Yeah. There is no reason to do this. No. It is actively harmful to the area you're building in. I am of agreement with this. Yeah, so a great example of this actually is, like we were talking about, like, the Union Station neighborhood, and I know that that's, you know, a central station. We talked about that last episode. But the way that the sort of center of gravity of that neighborhood has shifted towards the transit hub, very good. That's a center of social life. There's sports venues, there's music, there's bars, there's diners, there's grocery stores, and, you know, it's a place to go. Ninth and Ninth is the same way. Yeah, you ride the bus to Ninth and Ninth, you get off, and you walk, like, 20 feet to a shop. Yeah, and you can go out for the night and then take the bus home. Spooky. Heathen. (laughs) Unto heck goeth thou. And if for some reason you're out till 2 a.m. and you need to get home, find a scooter share or something. Yes. Or ask a a green bike. bike. Oh, oh, yeah, they do have a green bike. bike. Or take the green bike. Yeah, or ask a friend for a ride. Yeah, that's also It's better to get home safe. Well... Oh, we're, we're, uh, we're predicating. Depend, depends, it depends what you've done throughout the night. That is true. Yeah. That's what I'm referring that to. That is true. Yeah. I prefer a drunk biker to a drunk driver, but yes, yeah. preferably don't bike or drive drunk kids. That's bad. Mm-hmm. But we got options. You can walk home drunk. You can get a ride share drunk. You can get an Uber home you get, drunk. You can get your friend drunk. You can go on the bus drunk as long as you don't throw up. Well, you well can there's probably, bags for that. There are, there are there bags, bags for, for that. that. Well, and I guess that's the true genius of the grid design is if you know where you're going, straight line. Well, the trouble with walking in a straight line, <laughs> it's kind of hard when you're drunk. It's drunk people yeah. don't do that. But th- this is a perfect example of why options are so good and so important. Like, say you are drunk off your arse at a bar <laughs> at 2 a.m. In, and s- the, in yeah, Salt Lake City? In Salt Lake City. Oh, come on. <laughs> and There's, like, two things open that late. <laughs> this is a hypothetical. Oh, okay. And your only way home <laughs> is your personal automobile, which you drove there. 
And it is, like, obscenely unsafe to get behind the wheel of that. You are putting so many lives at risk by doing especially such a thing. Especially your own. Well, especially with people walking. <laughs> well, they aren't people. They're not in a car. Ah. Haven't you read the brilliant article in the New York Times, How Are You American If You Don't Drive? My <laughs> but But if you can provide so much as, like, half-hour all-night bus service. These people suddenly have a safe and relatively convenient to get way to get home without killing tens of other people. Yeah, this reminds me of a um, an episode of House MD where he, where he gets super drunk and then Dr. Wilson's girlfriend comes and picks him up but he takes the bus and she gets on the bus. But he takes the bus because he's drunk. Brilliant. <laughs> and it's late at night but it's still running. Novel concept in Salt Lake City. Well, <laughs> they think if they have it, Uan, then that will encourage bad behavior. Ah, uh, yes. Sorry. I am going to, um... I'm going to start using heroin because there are safe needle disposal sites. I'm going to start getting drunk every night because I can take the bus home. Yeah. You know, like, I would... No. <laughs> that's I would think not... That, <laughs> I would think that not having night bus service encourages people to drive drunk. Well, yes, it does. Which it, is a fact. Yeah. Well, and everyone would be more reckless in general, probably, in getting home. Yeah, yeah, probably. Well, like, I mean, I see, because I have occasionally with Kyle t- ridden a bike pretty late at night, and we see people walking home because they can't drive, and they're just walking because there's no good bus service. So good for them not getting behind the wheel. But also... They should have bus service. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe one day. Maybe one day we'll have a 24-7 route. <laughs> yeah. So hear, hear this, state legislature. If you want less people to die on the roads, give them other options than driving. Huh. So we don't get the riskiest drivers on the roads. Yes. So, yeah. Um, if a hub is not placed in a destination, city's got to work real quick and intends to develop the area around a mobility hub into a proper neighborhood center. Because... Here's the thing with the habits of how people move around. Like, there was this guy, a transportation engineer in Portland, who sort of did a typology of how people move. So, there are the 40% of people who can't drive, there are the 5% of people who don't want to drive, and there are the 30 to 35% of people who do it because they're used to it. That is the target audience, and you have to, if you're going to provide the 35 with alternate options, you need to get that ingrained into their neighborhood and to their habits as quickly as possible, which is why you don't build an apartment in the suburbs without putting a bus line to it, because otherwise people are going to drive, and once you're in the habit of driving, you're going to keep doing that. Whereas, if there is a bus station right in front of your apartment, you might take the bus one day, and you'll get in the habit of doing that instead. So, like, building things, places where there is good mobility options, and also providing mobility options to places that are good is very crucial for building good habits in people. So believe it or not, if you have options to use different modes of transportation, then people might try those options. What a whack idea. Whereas if those options don't exist, then it's... Or they suck. Yeah, then it's pretty much impossible to try them, even if you want to. Ahem, ahem, West Valley bus grid, ahem. Oh, I know they get completely screwed over by everything, man. Literally, especially the legislature, <laughs> and also everyone thinks they're like a den of crime and iniquity, and it's really not. It's, it's quite nice over <laughs> there. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. I feel and, bad about letting them poor. Yeah. Um, other things that you could do to like make a neighborhood hub even better. And these and are this is just our easy dream fast dream wish list. Yeah, yeah. Easy, easy fast things wish list. So cities take note and do these tomorrow. Wi-Fi. Wi-Fi is good actually and people tend to linger places where there's free Wi-Fi. People linger in coffee shops. What if you have Wi-Fi coverage of your whole little like neighborhood center hub thing? It's basically like a big outdoor lingering space, which is good. Yeah, that's actually something I was really impressed by because I was in Helena last week and you're going to get to hear all about my first ever experience with a pedestrian mall later. But one of the things I was very impressed by, their little, like, I don't know, maybe like three or four Salt Lake City block long little pedestrianized downtown area, free Wi-Fi through the whole thing. So that was quite impressive. Also, a good thing to have in these places 
is public art because one, there are a lot of unemployed artists who would sure like a job, and B, <laughs> it's pretty. <laughs> it's pretty, and it makes the place nice. Like that's a good thing about Ogden's downtown is that they have these like painted horses all over the place that are really neat, and you kind of almost want to go on a scavenger hunt to look at all of them. Yet again, encouraging people to go to your cool place. And public art is also a great retrofit. Take, for example, South Salt Lake City's Mural Fest, where they got a bunch of local artists to paint murals on what were otherwise blank brick or concrete walls. And they look really nice. They look really nice. They're almost a thing to go admire in and of themselves. I know people that have gone and seek them out. Just for fun. Good. Yeah. yeah. But that's a great way to retrofit some old dilapidated dystopian stuff into pretty art. You mean not like along Utopia Avenue? <laughs> Dystopia Avenue. <laughs> Dystopia Avenue. <laughs> the only thing utopian about Utopia Avenue is, is the, the mural. Yeah. I don't think I've been down Utopia Avenue. Oh, we'll have to take you sometime. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Well, and then the last thing, libraries. Yeah, just there is a such thing as book deserts and um, putting just like a little baby library branch even at like your mobility hub. Please. Is such a good idea because it allows everyone to access it super easy. Which is really important. Reading education is, is power and all those things that yeah. they tell you in public or school in general, I suppose. They're also just great public spaces that add to the rest of your great public space that you're building. Well, yeah. And they can be a part of the area that you're in, like the Sprog Branch and Sugar House. Yes. How they that have is exactly what sugar I'm talking beets about. All throughout the architecture since they had to retrofit it because of the flood. Yes. I love that. It's lovely. Um, yeah, and so we're also going to link, like, there's this really good little, like, three- or four-page graphic thing, and that's going to be linked, like, immediately down in the description because it is exactly what we were talking about here, and it's really brilliant and beautiful. Ooh. Are you Ooh. looking at it now? Yeah. I just saw the before Yeah, yeah, look at this thing. It's It's beautiful. We got, like, just a... Regular road looks kind of Chicago-y. There's an L train there. There's a bus stop, and there's a bench, and there's, you know, standard zebra crosswalks. But then that, you get that alone by Western U.S. standards is actually pretty good. Yes, it is. <laughs> uh, but then you go down to the second image, and suddenly you've activated the corner. You got a bus route under the L train. You got like bus lanes and bike lanes and a park and retail and residential. There's a pharmacy. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a place. It's no longer just a sidewalk to walk on. There's a destination. There's several destinations. Yes, yeah. very true. So that's beautiful. I know. I th that's what Ninth and Ninth should look like, that's, especially the L train. That's pretty. Uh, <laughs> it's it's not that far off. Aside from the L train, that's not that far off. No, it's it's pretty good. I do wish that they would. SL SLC moves uh, mm. is our Department of Transportation for the city, and they control both those roads. And my favorite thing is that the current leader of SLC moves, his uh, Twitter handle is at Curb Traffic. <laughs> so, like, they should do more to curb traffic and ideally should be a pedestrian plaza, to be honest with you. It already has, like, the weird plaza thing there in the middle, so I don't it's know why got, it's yeah. not. It's got, like, long crosswalk times. I know, it does. Yeah. It's nice. I think it's not just because those are two, like, through roads. Also, one of the only places that I feel safe to, like, bike in the road. Yeah. <laughs> it's weird. Like, oh, and it has two 15-minute buses. It does. Which is which brilliant. Is magical in Salt Lake City. Absolutely. Especially since the 205 and 220 have disappeared into the ether for all eternity. Yeah. Yeah. I rode the 209 a lot today. Oh, yeah? Where'd yeah. you go? Allergy clinic. Oh, that sucks. Yeah. No, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> but, wow, getting to a, a place via transit. Hmm. That's crazy. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Almost like we were talking about that. Good segue, Alex. <laughs> Even better, with mobility hubs, if you have to take transfers, getting to a place via transit and ending up in different places along the way. Mm -hmm. We talked about this, Alex and I, on CityCast a while back, is that one of the cool things about public transportation is that you notice a lot more stuff. Yes. Like, when you're just going by on the bus, you're like, instead of, like, hyper fixating on the road or whatever, you're like, 
oh, hey, look, that's a neat shop or a neat coffee shop. I'd like to go there. Yeah. It's like being a kid again in the back seat, except you have money, so you can go to I the mean, cool places. I mean, even being a kid in a back seat, though, like, I grew up in the suburbs. Alex, you're technically the only person who didn't grow up in the suburbs. Well, I, I in did. the suburbs, suburbs. Suburbs, like, suburbs. Yeah, I love my neighborhood. Yeah, no, yeah yours you, is nice. Your neighborhood is very nice. It could obviously be better, but, yeah, you're technically the only one who didn't grow up in the suburbs, but, like, Growing up as a suburban child, looking out the window, what you see is like the same fourteen big box stores. So like, or just the wall on the side of the freeway and the billboards. That more commonly, yeah. So it's really interesting as an adult to sort of sit in the proverbial back seat and just be like, "Wow, there's a whole lot more going on here than there was yeah. in Nampa, Idaho." And, <laughs> and that's the cool thing is you can have more stuff going on here because the more car stuff you shove through a place. The less, the less it becomes a place. stuff there can be there. Because yeah. the car stuff actively takes up land area, introduces speed, danger, and noise, and destroys the place. Whereas the more public transit, walking and biking, you, thro- you put through a place, the more it becomes a place, because the more people are there to spend their money and spend their time. Slaps roof of neighborhood mobility hub. This bad boy can fit so many bike and walk in it. Good. Good. <laughs> that's that's a throwback. Yes, it is. Yeah. So it's a really good positive reinforcement loop, so, <laughs> which is, again, why these sometimes just happen naturally. Yeah. Like, um, no offense to the city of Salt Lake City, but uh, 9th and 9th was not intentional. It was purely an accident that it happened the way it did because they didn't actively tear down the commercial district like they did with a lot of other ones and replace it with SFH. So it still exists, but now they won't permit additional commercial in it anymore. So, yeah, it's it's not through the power of the city of Salt Lake. Ninth and Ninth is purely a a coincidence. Oh, and that <laughs> probably ties into the neighborhood's identity. Like that's probably one of the strongest neighborhoods, um, with people being proud to be from Ninth and Ninth. Right. Absolutely. Uh, the only ones who could surpass that is probably it, which shall not be named, slightly next to the Utah Capitol building. And uh, Sugar House are probably the two other neighborhoods with the biggest identity. Yeah. Oh, and uh, probably the West Side neighborhoods. Uh, holiday, kind of. Yeah. They have the central. They aren't they a town yeah. though? Yeah, they are. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, but like, other, I guess Rose Park and, and Rose Fair Park, Park yeah, sort Fair of do, Park. but that's just because they have to band together to survive the vicissitudes of UDOT and the city. Um, <laughs> But yeah, we wish them luck. Wow! But like, Much contrast luck. that to South like South Salt Lake City's quote unquote neighborhoods. Boy which are just pretty much made-up arbitrary rectangles on a map. <laughs> Half of them are related to stuff UTA built here for them, yeah. and none of them really center around anything. Like, well, what, what neighborhoods are we talking about? There are no neighborhoods in South Salt Lake, well, Let me there? find the map. The city has Oh, the, the city one. has published it's, a map? Uh, <laughs> That's, sad. Um, That's sad. That's uh, sad. Let's see. A water tower neighborhood? I know. Is that, isn't that just like the freaking, like... Mill Creek Station neighborhood? Let me see this oh nonsense. You know, honestly, these make pretty good voting They districts. made these up. Water Tower, 21st S-Line neighborhood. Lope Yard neighborhood, which is just the rails. That's literally just a rail yard. <laughs> There's nothing there. Yeah, like they just sliced mm. up their housing into... Rectangles. There's Riverfront and Jordan River neighborhood. Central Park. Central Park? That's a golf course. That's a golf course. It's not a park, sorry. (laughs) What? But as you can clearly see, as you can clearly see, without the placemaking you get from mobility hubs, your neighborhood doesn't have an identity. But but suburban neighborhoods have identities, Kyle. Haven't you heard of Riverfront Table Chicken River Cow? Yeah, they have they have <laughs> like they will name the developments. Yeah, and, like and it becomes a has a neighborhood identity totally. It, it's like Rock Shower or Yeah, like I'm I'm from Rockshaw Creek. It has a name but no identity. Yeah. Uh, it's not like uh, Liberty Wells has like its own I, yeah or pizzazz or like it. East Central. That's that's a pretty strong uh, community organization as well. Also yeah. a big thing, ballpark. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Wonder where they got their name like, from. Like a lot of well, the maybe they named the ballpark after it. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. Federal Heights is yeah. named after because that's where it used to be like a fort and stuff there. Yeah, like a lot of the Salt Lake City uh, neighborhoods are pretty 
fuzzily defined, like there's this area and we just put a name on it. But they're defined because those areas are places with unique identities right. and things in them. It seems like Salt Lake <laughs> has a framework. We just need to try harder. Well, Salt Lake has it because yeah, it's you, old. If you, if you were to like, well, we're not entirely rest, resting on our laurels here. I mean, to be fair, there has been a lot of good placemaking done in Sugar House recently. Absolutely, absolutely. So, the trouble is that they need to, instead of just being like, well, we're going to have downtown and the granary and sugar house be our special development districts. No, do it everywhere. Yes. And it becomes like every part of the city becomes a unique place. Like, oh my God. not everything has to be as big and tall and busy as downtown sugar house is. That's one, well, maybe it should be, but <laughs> that's one thing. And then ninth and ninth is another thing. It, it's smaller, it's slower, it's not as tall. I, I just unlocked uh, one of my like early childhood memories oh, yeah? where they closed Highland Drive in Sugar House and had like a whole street festival there. Oh, that sounds and nice. And they, nice. they used to have a road, you know the Sugar House Monument? Yeah. They used to have a road there instead of the whole instead walking Instead of a plaza, area. yeah. Ah. I can't believe they were able to shut it. Well, it was because they framed it as part of like their fancy Sugar House development. Yeah, but that was before any of the new development. Really? Yeah, that was like when the Whole Foods was still a wild oats. <laughs> <laughs> Connor, you're banished from rolling your chair. Ah, oh, fine. I like rolling my chair. You're banished from rolling your chair. Oh. Anyways, continue, Alex. Oh, uh, well, that's, that's pretty yeah, much that's what I had to say. Yeah, so, like, there's there's a ton of neighborhoods that you could do this sort of thing in, and, yeah, we need to be doing it all of them because, for one thing, just for environmentalism reasons, Salt Lake City needs to... Salt Lake City, period, needs to absorb the majority of future growth in the valley. Otherwise, we are going to run out of water because you cannot do suburban development in a desert because it sucks up way more water. Like Salt Lake City uses literally three times less water per resident than places like Draper, Harriman, uh, Murray, Provo, whatever. And Salt Lake City's not even that good. No. no. So, well, yeah. I know. One day I'm going to write an episode about environmentalism and public transit. Yes, no. Because I'm taking an environmental writing class. We need to do an in-depth dive on just how good transit and biking and walking are for the environment. The thesis of it is pretty much density equals better for the environment. And you have to have transit, walking, and biking to sustain density because you can't do it with cars. Yes. Mm -hmm. And, I don't know, maybe ship stuff on trains. Yes, please. Electric trains, nationalize the railroads, 400-mile-an-hour Amtrak train from Chicago to L.A. 200-mile-an-hour oh. <laughs> <laughs> freight trains be like. Yeah, why not? Why yeah, not? why not? Why wouldn't you build a quad-tracked uh, main line that's high speed, and then you can run freight really fast? If you run freight and passenger, why not run them both fast? Actually, it's because energy efficiency... <laughs> Big brain. Electricity good, actually. Oh, another good place that's been, like, sort of urban redeveloped is uh, around Pioneer Park. Because that used to be a very much, like... It was like the granary is today, except oh. used to not be. I always wondered, because when you're walking from Salt Lake Central going into the city, it, like, a little bit before Pioneer Park, it stops being, like, sketch and run down, and it starts being, like, a place I'm more comfortable in and that has more things happening. In right, it. like, 3rd South especially, um, next to Pioneer Park, is, like, a really brilliant activated urban block. There's ton of mixed use. There's markets and restaurants, and I don't think there's a bar, but close enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's a really cool area, like the old warehouses. I know. That's one of my favorite places in the city. Cool. Yeah. Would you look at that? You can do de development in small suburban neighborhood centers, in big sort of suburban, sort of Ooh. not uh, centers like Sugar House. <laughs> yes. And in actual downtown. You are ruining the character of the neighborhood. You're making the character <laughs> of the neighborhood. <laughs> so I think that's all for, um, for non-Patreon content today. Yeah, oh, hey, fun. we didn't do even do the last thing. Oh, what's the last thing? Accessibility. That's actually like the most important thing. So in the process of doing all this placemaking and building these mobility hubs, it's important for them to be accessible. Yeah. And need. that doesn't just mean to ADA ramps. That means accessible to everyone. Right. So that means like you need wayfinding, 
Very important. We're going to have an episode about that soon. But wayfinding, you need clear signage. You should have like neighborhood maps and walking things and stuff like that. Uh, you should also have like real-time arrival screens for your buses and such things so that like when people show up to the little mini hub, they can be like, oh, okay, well, I need to go east. There's a nine coming in five minutes going east. How convenient. Which is great and removes barriers to using those bus routes. Right, and it also means that if you get there early, you're like, ah, there's 10 minutes till the bus nine going east gets here. I, I'm going to go get a coffee real quick. Or I'm going to go window shop around the block. Yeah. And then another important thing is good bus stops and places to wait. So maybe a bit of shade. Trees. N nice shelters. Maybe a place to sit, please. Yeah, that'd be real nice. Yes, actual benches. <laughs> yeah. But there's no reason your bus stop can't feel like a place, too, and not yeah. just like an abandoned shack on the side of the road. Sure, like a bus stop would be like a great, it should be like a great hangout place. <laughs> and feel free to do some public art on the bus shelter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't mind graffiti that much as long as it's good. <laughs> oh. Public art, sanctioned graffiti. Yeah, but it is basically. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the people who do murals like that are also graffiti artists. So. All right. Uh, yeah, and then also road diets because please, old please. people, young people, all people in between people need to be able to walk across the street safely, and that is a big deal for accessibility. When you are building a central mobility hub, it should be a place designed first and foremost for people and then Motor for bikes, and then for transit, and then for rideshare, and then for the personal automobile. So any <laughs> motor vehicles you're letting through are guests, and they are not to inconvenience the pedestrians, they are not to move ex excessively fast, and they are not to arrive in high traffic volumes. There are rules for them. That sounds so nice. <laughs> I know. Uh, that sounds like the dream. And, there, and I, by rules, we don't need mean a sign that says speed limit 15 Please, and two speed belts. PLZ be nice, uwu. Yes. <laughs> we, we mean actual road diets, like make the road narrow, use pavers where appropriate, put in greenery, make it not straight as an arrow. Yes. Use signaling or the lack thereof very tactfully. Indeed. So... When you put all this stuff together, you create a neighborhood center that makes it easy, convenient, and fun to use transit. Or walking, or biking. Correct. And can help to get people out of their cars. You also help build a neighborhood and make it a place. And all these things are good and can further change behaviors. Yes. All good things. All good things. So... That is the episode for today. Uh, can I apologize for having the plague and then going to England? Oh, yeah, you can do that, too. Okay. Uh, before we go, I'd just like to say I'm sorry about uh, the plague and going to England. Uh, that's why we haven't had an episode out in a while. Yeah, by the time everybody sees this, it's going to be about 21 days since our last episode. So, yeah, sorry about that. Um, but that is the episode of day. That is the episode today. Please <laughs> That is the episode today. Please make sure to like and subscribe on YouTube and follow and leave us a rating on iTunes or Spotify. If you like this episode, please make sure to check out our other episodes or maybe even consider becoming a Patreon. Thank you so much to all of our patrons, especially those in Frontrunner tier, Curtis Herring, Mike Christensen, and Phobos2390. Thank you also to all of our other patrons, including Brian Smith, Jacob Whitecotton, Ben Busap, DJ Will Watkins, Hi Will, and Ethan McDonald. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you. I think that's it for non-Patreon content. <laughs>